Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We can catch up with a good friend of this program, Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity. Tony, you've been quiet for a solid week. Where have you been? <laughs> I don't know. I don't feel so quiet. Uh, so I, I'm in this funky position because we've been expecting a relief rally and we got it. Like we got a relief rally that is historic. We've retraced about 50 percent of what we've lost during the 34 percent crash in March. And that that really is extraordinary. So what you know, I'm trying to figure out if a tactical rally, meaning based on an oversold condition, hope, uh, if that's going to become a fundamental rally. And I'm, I'm not clear on that at this point. I look, Tony, at the equity markets in what I perceive is a narrowness of this rally. How narrow is narrow? Well, the last two days have seen the downside volume significantly outweighing the upside volume. So you had you had two really bad, quote-unquote, market days, but the mega-cap tech was leading. So the thing that's the most interesting about that mega-cap tech at this point is it's actually con- considered defensive. So for those that have gone on offense, right, we, we downgraded the market, as you guys know, in January, and expected once you got that panic low, which was identifiable, we expect a relief rally, and we got it. It's been a lot more than I thought it would be, but the wrong groups are leading it. If, you, if you're expecting a good fundamentally driven bull market, they usually are kicked off with small cap stocks leading, with offensive sectors like financials, industrials, consumer discretionary, with those areas leading but they're lagging. So there, there's in, basically the, to make it very clear for the listeners, because this sounds really complicated, coming off of a major bear market low, you want to see the more aggressive areas do better. But that's not been the case in the rally. And, and that was evidence, Tom, as you suggested, by the narrowness of the last couple of days. Tony, as you talk, it strikes me that perhaps we can look at this in another way, that when we say the stock market is rallying despite the horrific data that we keep getting out of the real economy, perhaps this is a couple of key tech names that are rallying while the rest of the stocks completely lag behind the small caps down 25% year to date. And it doesn't necessarily indicate anything positive, even hope for the economy in the months ahead. Is that a better way to understand the rally that we're seeing in equities right now? Yes, it's really born out of an extreme oversold condition when everybody got too bearish all at once. And that's what we identified as, quote, unquote, the panic low. You know, you have you kick off a human nature. There's times when human nature is the driver of the market activity. And then there's times for fundamentals. For the last 10 years, it's been a fundamentally driven, positive credit backdrop, good earnings driven rally. Right now, it's it right. basically everybody got too short and too too out of the market too quickly. Okay, but where are we right now? On this Friday, is everybody's going to go home this weekend, like John Farrow, and try to figure out what to do with their 201k. I'm not what, sure anyone left home, Tom. That's true. What? That's right. <laughs> nice they think, oh, excuse me. Lost my head. I went out yesterday for the first time in 10 days. It was wow. Amazing. wow. I was fully protected. I hope Has so. Met? 
Yep. I had no. I had a hazmat. Yep. I had the two things on the side and vet bill. The same thing. Yeah. Yep, I was about to say. <laughs> was there? Tech, tech came over to Tech came over to tweak my get back on look. track. No, Tech came over. They <laughs> were dazzled. They met vet bill. They were more interested in vet bill than me. Tony, I want to talk yeah. about what I do this weekend with my four hundred one k allocation. How enthused are you to reallocate right now to rebalance right now? I'm not real enthused. I, I would have been down 34% despite the economic backdrop because that was down too far too fast. Now I think we've gone up too far too fast. So, again, Tom, you do not want to bet against the guys printing their money. The Fed told you they're going to continue to support yep. everything but stocks. Don't bet against – I would not bet against the market. But at this point, I also wouldn't chase the kind of rally, not just that it's 25% over a very short period of time – but also the kind where Lisa mentioned small cap stocks are underperforming and the more economically sensitive sectors are also underperforming. Well, let's talk about what's working then. What's working really both in the United States and Europe, and you saw it pretty pronounced in yesterday's price action, IT and healthcare, what's lagging, what's ugly, financials and energy. Are you just saying stick with the stuff that's working? That's a, at this point, you would ha- that would that's the leadership. Um, honestly, I'd be pretty sector neutral right now. I I think that there there are times where you can have a high conviction call, and there's times when you don't. And this is as you guys know, we've been doing this for a number of years. I'm pretty happy to make a high conviction call when I have one. At this point, this is a tactical rally. Um, I don't think I I would chase the strength, and I I think uh, it's just a good time to just be neutral and wait for more economic data. Tony, always appreciate your honesty, and thanks for your time this morning. I hope you and yours are doing pretty well. Tony Dwyer there of Canaccord Genuity. For our audience worldwide on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio, I'm very pleased to say that we're joined now by the president of the Cleveland Bank of the Federal Reserve, alongside Bloomberg's Michael McKee, who will join us for this interview. The Cleveland Fed president joins us now. Loretta Mester, fantastic to catch up with you. I just want to reflect on the data that we've had for this economy, because it has been brutal. 22 million jobless claims in a single month, wiping out a decade of jobs growth. I want you to help us understand how you see the future path for policy together with this recovery as these economies slowly normalize at the back end of this year. Yeah, so you're right. The data is very ugly. Um, Not unexpected given what we've decided as a country to do in the best interest of public health, which is, of course, social distancing and shutting down. Um, And the medical experts tell us that's the best way to control the virus. So what you've seen is all the numbers coming in basically reflect that shutdown in activity, the fact that many firms are furloughing workers. You see that in the initial claims numbers. You see workers being laid off. This is very, very painful for everyone. Um, Not only do you have to deal with illness and sickness, but then you also have to worry about um, your financial well-being. So, you know, small businesses throughout our district in the 4th District, the Midwest, are telling us, you know, this is an incredibly unprecedented event for them. So I'm not that surprised about the actual numbers per se um, because we, we engineered the shutdown. The question is, going forward, can we put in policies, and I think the Fed and the federal government have been trying to do this, to get people from the economy that looked good in February through this pandemic shutdown period 
so that when the economy begins to open up again, they have the wherewithal um, to sort of have the recovery come on board. And so a lot of the things that the Fed is doing is to try to make sure that there's a good foundation in terms of functioning markets, which, of course, is vital for uh, an economy to get, you know, credit um, and lending to the households and businesses that need it um, to reduce collateral damage um, and mitigate some of the impacts from the shutdown so that when we get to the point where the economy reopens, the recovery um, is in the best possible place it can be given this unprecedented shutdown and activity. Uh, Loretta, this is Michael. Um, when you talk about when uh, we're going to open up, what are CEOs in your district, and you're in the heart of manufacturing country in the U.S., what are they telling you about the damage they see now and when they think they can reopen and what the economy will look like when we do? Will they have customers? Will they ramp up rapidly? Uh, what do you see from Cleveland? Right. So we're all working on this right now. Um, as you know, Governor DeWine of Ohio um, is doing daily press conferences, and he yesterday said that he's aiming for May 1st for some type of reopening. But, of course, that reopening is going to be done very carefully and staged because no one wants to go backward. Um, and so, really, it's really thinking through now what those criteria would be. You know, and we have some examples of firms that did stay open as essential companies of how they've been able to do it. For example, grocery stores. So taking some of the lessons about how do you do social distancing within a, a store, how do you do social distancing within a manufacturing plant, and trying to apply those. So, you know, my view in talking to the firms is everyone realizes that everyone wants to kind of get back to, to work, but everyone realizes that how you do that um, really is, has to be done very carefully. And so we're, you know, we expect to see social distancing practices continue. Um, certainly, you know, uh, personal protective equipment like masks and gloves will be part of that. So it's got to be done very thoughtfully. Some things will be able to reopen that make it, you know, that can do social distancing more easily than others. Um, you wouldn't expect to see big conventions or, or even, uh, you know, conferences where you have people, um, a lot of people around. You have to be very careful about how you do it. But everyone kind of has a goal of wanting to kind of get back to opening up activity, you know, partly because when you think about it, this is very painful for, so, you know, small businesses. Um, you know, some of them have had to shut down. Very painful for people that, you know, have, you know, have lost their jobs in certain sectors or bearing the brunt of this. And so um, this is why I think you've seen unprecedented action at both the Federal Reserve and at the federal government level of, of trying to mitigate the negatives um, on the economy from the appropriate policy of social distancing and shutting down the activity in order to get the virus under control. Well, do you think maybe markets are getting a little bit ahead of uh, themselves in pricing in a very rapid recovery at this point? How, when do you think we start growing again and, and how quickly? Yeah, so, I mean, as you've seen, I think that there are going to be different parts of the country that are going to feel that they're capable of bringing back some businesses when the virus has kind of gotten to a point where the curve starts to flatten and then move down. So you're going to see that not all of businesses and not all parts of the company opening at the same time. So as that happens, you would expect to see, at least in terms of numbers, in terms of percentages, looking like they're 
they're moving back up, right? When you go from a zero base to activity, you're going to see some increase in terms of the percentage rise in some of those numbers. But that nowhere, nowhere implies that, right, we've made up what we lost by the shutdown. And so, you know, you might see some of the numbers of, like, percentage growth and output looking like they're coming back, you know, maybe in the third quarter if, if things start to open up in certain areas. But again, that doesn't mean that you're truly back to, you know, activity being back to normal. It's just going to take time, right? If you're a manufacturing yeah. plant um, and you don't have, you know, supplies, um, it's going to take time for you to kind of bring back your workers, you know, get the supply of inputs that you need to start picking up activity. And then, of course, it depends on what demand you're going to face. So I think it will take some time for the economy to kind of pick back up. And right now we're in this still in the phase of, making sure we get to that point without, you know, as, as best we can, with trying to limit the damage, um, the economic damage, and get people so that they can sort of resume things um, in the best way possible. Loretta, we're up against the clock, so I want to jump in and get as many questions in as possible if we can. I don't want to be tone deaf to what's happening in the markets right now. We have a 17 handle on WTI crude. We have some real risk in the high yield space of defaults, yet people have been encouraged to pile on that risk in the last week because the Federal Reserve has suggested it will go into high yield. Can you see why that's encouraging risky behavior at a time when maybe we shouldn't be doing that? So we're in a, you know, a real unprecedented, incredibly deep, deep shock to the economy. And I think it behooves us at the Fed to really use our tools as best we can to get us through this pandemic shutdown period, mitigating the, the negative impact on the economy so that the recovery can be as best as it can be when we get to that point. Yes, we are moving into unprecedented territory, but remember, we're trying to then lend to firms um, that through no fault of their own were impacted by the virus. And so there are, pro- you know, we are going into, for example, um, corporate debt programs, which we haven't done before. Um, and we are going to include some fallen angels, right, that, you know, yep. had an investment-grade rating before the virus hit. So you're right that we're, we are doing things that we hadn't done before. But at this point, I don't think we can be that concerned about um, those kind of moral hazards. I really think we have to really look at this is a hugely impactful and negatively impactful shock. And we have to do all we can to make sure that we're not doing permanent damage to the underlying fundamentals of the economy so that when the time comes and activity can pick up, we can get a decent recovery out of this. A lot of what you just said will make sense to a lot of people. Where people struggle, though, Loretta, and maybe you can help us, buying double B credits that were triple B before this might make sense to tons of people. They're huge employers. Buying high-yield ETFs that have triple C credit in them, exposed to a very shaky energy sector that weren't on firm footing before this, doesn't make sense. Why the decision to buy junk ETFs? Part of what we're doing and all the things that we're doing are twofold. One is, right, we're trying to make sure that the markets stay functioning. So some of the efforts that the Fed has done, right, are really geared at market functioning, and some of them are geared to make sure that, right, we mitigate the negative effects on households and businesses by making sure that we have credit flowing to those businesses. So I look at the ETF part of that as a market functioning issue. 
Um, and so, and we're continuing to look for gaps to make sure that our markets are functioning. And I would say that some of the efforts that we've taken already have improved functioning in the market. So there's two things going on. One of is making sure that, and this is the Fed's responsibility, right, is to make sure that we have markets that are well-functioning so that credit can flow, right, and do what it can to help shore up the economy to prepare it for the recovery. So, you know, we can, di- we can disagree on kind of what the right way to do that is, but part of what we're doing is to try to make sure that we have functioning financial markets precisely because those are an essential ingredient for the economy for that any other policies that we do can flow through. So there's a transmission to the households and businesses that need those funding. Uh, we got about two minutes left, Loretta. I know that um, at this point the Fed is all in, doing everything it can to try to support the economy. When we get to that third quarter maybe reopening and it's time to stimulate the economy, is there more you think you need to do or can do, and what would that be? So I think we're going to have to see how, um, what it looks like when we get there. I don't think we're up against any kind of constraint on what we can do. As you've seen, we, we, I think we acted um, appropriately, rapidly, um, in an unprecedented, rapidly way, really because of the recognition of how deep this, this shock was um, and engineered because of the investment we're making in public health, right? So when we get to that point, we're going to look at our tools, do what we can, again, to support some of the programs that the federal government is doing um, in terms of, like, the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, et cetera, and then be prepared to use our tools as appropriate to make sure, one, markets function, and, two, that we're supporting the economy as we always do um, so that we can get back to a normal, sustainable growth with um, full employment and price stability. And so that's what our goal is going to be. That's what our goals always are. Um, and we have tools to do that. Yeah. We have forward guidance. We have our interest rate tools that we're doing right now at zero. Um, and we're going to move those things around as appropriate um, to make sure that the economy can recover and get back to a sustainable growth path. Loretta, we have to leave it there, and I have to say thank you to you for your time. A conversation we will continue. Loretta Mester there, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. A special thanks to our audience on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio. This is without question our definitive discussion this week on the microbiology and the virology of this pandemic. Andrew Pellish is out of Rutgers in Penn. He is at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. I should point out that Mr. Bloomberg has provided philanthropy to his Johns Hopkins University and, of course, is the founder of Bloomberg LP and this television and radio station. This is an extraordinary expert on microbiology and virology. Let's listen to Professor Pelkos. This virus is is truly um, interesting in the sense that it causes this broad spectrum of diseases. So it's very true that the vast majority of people will suffer what we call sort of mild to moderate diseases, uh, maybe even no symptoms at all. But when you look at um, the vulnerable portions of the population, the elderly, 
Um, when you look at people with secondary medical conditions, such as diabetes, heart disease, or the lung disease, and to be honest, even when you look at relatively healthy individuals, um, there are a significant number of part of the population that has very severe disease requiring, if not a hospital visit, um, in, in, um, admission into the hospital. So it runs in a, a huge spectrum in terms of how it presents um, after infection. I don't want to talk enzymes on a Friday, and I certainly don't want to talk RNA transcriptase and the other necessities <laughs> of doing a test. But I would suggest respectfully, doctor, that America, from the top down, doesn't understand the sophisticated chemistry and biochemistry of tests. How hard is it to do a test and millions of tests for this virus? So we know a lot about the virus, and you certainly can do good testing. It requires not only a good test, but it also requires a good laboratory that's validated, that knows how to do testing, that knows how to do the controls, and knows how to um, show that they can reproducibly perform the tests well. So that's where it's really important to be focused in on public health agencies and medical institutions that know how to do these tests. Professor Pekosh, talk to us about reinfection and immunity. Are people that have had the virus really getting infected twice? Yeah, so right now um, it's still a little bit um, unclear, but um, it, this, is, this gets back to the testing issue. Oftentimes what I've seen is people who are testing positive by the, you know, the test that tells you if you're infected, which is a PCR test that detects the virus. That doesn't necessarily mean you've been reinfected. It may simply mean that there's small amounts of the virus that are still in your system um, from the infection that you've already controlled a few days ago or a week or so ago. So right now there really is no good evidence to suggest that you're getting reinfected after your first exposure. It may simply be that the virus is hanging around and you see vestiges of the virus there um, after you've controlled the initial infection. But it's something that's very important to, to understand as we think about rolling at, back and, and coming, uh, relieving some of our public health interventions. Do we have a credible test to test immunity? There's going to be a two-part uh, phase to that. Um, many of the tests that are out there will tell you if you've had an infection and if you have antibodies. Um, now, that's important because that'll tell us how many people were infected the first time this virus moves through the population. But most of those tests don't really tell you if you're protected from reinfection. That's going to take a second set of tests that are done uh, more in laboratory settings that take a little bit of time to develop, but that'll differentiate people who just have some antibodies right. to it versus the people that have antibodies that we think will protect you from reinfection. We'd like to think that those are going to be very closely related, but we have to do those experiments to be 100% sure that the right. rapid tests that people are establishing are really telling you that you're protected from infection or reinfection. Help me with reject the true or accept the false of this testing? How at risk is America to type one and type two malfunction in our testing? Yeah, so again, this gets back to, to, to the laboratories that are doing the testing and making sure that the tests are being performed in um, rigorous, controlled environments. Um, you can have two types of errors, right? You can have a false positive, meaning that you test positive when you really aren't infected. Um, and the other type of error is that you test negative when you really are infected. 
and it's that latter group that's really the most um, important to be um, aware of because that really means that you're telling people who are infected that they can go back out in the population and behave, you know, uh, and not take extra precautions. And again, laboratories that know how to perform these tests do something called validation, right? So they go through and they test with known samples um, both types of error and report back mm -hmm. what exactly they expect those errors to be. Right. Um, other laboratories that are just sort of fly-by-night may not be reporting that rigorously, and yeah. that's where some of the danger yeah. comes in. Andrew Peckhouse with uh, Francine Lacroix and myself. He's with the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Jared Bernstein's listening to this going, why am I on Fargo Radio? <laughs> <laughs> I was morning. about to say, scratching his head. <laughs> Jared Bernstein knows that uh, Vice President Biden, of course, will probably take Fargo. We'll see how that goes in the election. Mr. Bernstein was economic advisor to the vice president and is definitive in Washington on policy. Years ago at the Economic Policy Institute and now the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Dr. Bernstein is someone everybody reads right, left, and in the middle as well. Jared, John Farrell brought it up today, and John, as a British guy, doesn't understand the American ethos, the distrust of our federal system. Will that maintain in the coming weeks, or can we get a federal statement of assistance to Americans like we knew in times long past? I think there are those who are very skeptical, as you suggested, of the government uh, in normal times. But in times like this, uh, people really do turn to the federal sector for the kinds of help we need meeting existential challenges precisely like this one. It's the same as in wartime. One thing we've certainly seen is uh, a, uh, a level of uh, bipartisanship in Congress. You know, the CARES Act passed 96 to 0 in the Senate. When was the last time something like that happened? So at least for now, I think many Americans are walking around thinking we sure need government okay. and probably and probably thinking we, we need a, a more competent governance down the road. Jared, your work was pathbreaking a decade ago at the Economic Policy Institute of saying we need to get money into people's hands at certain emergent times. Why is Washington so reticent about income replacement? Yeah, well, I think the main uh, reason for that is, is just a real skepticism about giving money dire directly to people because of the fear that it will cause them to alter their labor supply. I think many American policymakers and economists really overestimate that, quote, labor supply elasticity that says if you give people a dollar, they're going to work less. Well, in fact, most people in America, their paychecks are such that they just have to keep working if they're going to get by. And by the way, right now, we don't want people to go to work. So that's one of the reasons why folks really need to put that sort of uh, uh, older thinking behind, behind right now. Usually statements, Jared, made by people who have never grown up around a working class environment and have no clue. Because most people, in fact, everybody I grew up with, wanted a job. They didn't want a handout from the government. And as you say, people are being told they have to stay at home. Businesses are being told they have to shut. Makes me wonder why we're sitting here asking questions about why Congress won't top up the Paycheck Protection Program for the Small Business Administration. Jared, why are we even having the conversation and asking the question? 
Well, first of all, let me just say you're exactly right in the first uh, part of your comments right there. You know, I, I started, I, in some ways, I think I'm probably a rare economist in that I started out as a social worker. And one of the first things I learned is that poor people simply can't begin to get by on uh, the money they get, at least from the American social assistance system, maybe different in some other countries. Look, I think the, uh, the, the scene in Congress right now is that both parties want to plus up the Paycheck Protection Act, because, uh, frankly, that money got out the door really quickly and is starting to meet some needs. Uh, but the Democrats want to add some other pieces that are you know, quite necessary to the next phase of a stimulus plan. The Republicans are resisting. So that's what they're squabbling about right now. So, Jared, as we have that backdrop, we have the unemployment figures that keep coming out uh, with jaw-dropping numbers yesterday, the, the sort of 5.2 million coming in a little below expectations, still mind-blowing. And you're the perfect person mm-hmm. to speak to about how quickly these jobs can come back after you're writing, uh, getting back to full employment and the state of working America. A decade <laughs> of jobs lost in four weeks. How quickly yeah. can we get them back? You know, it's really an epidemiological question more than an economic one, probably more quickly than you'd think, uh, because uh, at least from the information we have, many of these folks are uh, on a temporary layoff or furloughed. So uh, we're, uh, there, there's the potential to bounce back. But that can only happen, I believe, if we get the green light or at least the yellow light. That's more realistic. If we get the yellow light uh, from health officials and then from governors to do so, I do think that any reopening will be a very gradual one. But that's why the measures we were just talking about, these measures to help keep families and businesses kind of intact between now and then so that there's a, an economy on the other side of this that's capable of bouncing back. Jared, this is the key question. It's interesting to hear you say this because I've been reading a number of reports with people expecting the unemployment rate to remain at about 10% for a prolonged period of time in the United States. Are you saying that those estimates are are perhaps a little bit too pessimistic? No, I mean, I think the unemployment rate uh, is is probably above 10% now, and I think we'll be lucky if we we peak out at 20%. I know that's a scary number, but I think that's the fact of the case. What I'm saying is that if you look at some forecasts, uh, our friend Jan Hatzius over at Goldman, they actually have kind of a V-shaped bounce back built in, but that's based on an assumption that we're doing a lot more testing and tracing than we're anywhere close to now. So I think the the answer to your question is just conditional on the, uh, getting the yellow light from the uh, medical community. And if you read those folks, they're still quite skeptical because we're so far behind the curve on testing. I just think that if we do the right thing in terms of social and stimulative policy, or maybe call it relief policy, to keep households and businesses at least somewhat intact, then at least we know when we get the yellow light, there'll be an economy right. that's capable of bouncing back on the other side. Jared, quickly, I've got to ask the question. The world has changed. America has changed. What's the Bernstein prediction for what's a Bernstein prescription for Vice President Biden? What's he need to do right now? You know, I thought President Obama said it well in his uh, in his endorsement the other day, which is really worth watching because he actually gets into that precise question. Um, he said he wouldn't run on the same platform he did in 08. And we know that uh, Biden has been very influenced by his work with uh, President Obama. So this is the time, it gets back to your first question, this is the time where the country needs and wants an amply funded federal sector that is highly competent to meet the challenges we face repeatedly these days. 100-day floods, 100-year floods come every two years. It's amazing how that is. Major sectors. (laughs) 
You know what I'm well, saying? I mean, we, we, we well, face real challenges. Jared, we thank you so much. Jared Bernstein with us, of course, with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.